You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a security incident at Okta. The latest details on just what hackers got access to. As President Biden warns U.S. businesses to harden their cyber defenses against Russia. Plus, Robinhood unveils a new debit card that'll prompt users to round up their small change and invest it in stocks and even crypto as you spend. An exclusive interview with the chief product officer coming up. How to get more women into NFTs and Web3, the so-called future of the internet. We'll be speaking with Randy Zuckerberg about how she's trying to make sure nobody gets left behind in the next tech wave. Let's dig in now to the Okta breach. What exactly happened? What did hackers get their hands on? How serious is it? I want to bring in Bloomberg's Jeff Stone, who covers cybersecurity. Jeff, the initial reporting of this was that it was a security breach. Okta now saying their service wasn't breached. What happened here? That's correct. What Okta is saying, Emily, uh, doesn't quite fit with the hackers. You might not be surprised to learn. But essentially what the company said this afternoon is that uh, someone, an attacker, had access to uh, a third-party employee's access account for five days, which would give them um, really what appears to be a dramatic amount of access into the systems at the company. The the nature of the breach, though, still uh, is under investigation. This is really important because Okta is a service that is used right. by businesses around the world to keep them safe. Looking at this most recent blog post by Okta, they're saying the service hasn't been breached. It remains fully operational. There are no corrective actions that need to be taken by our customers. So what do you read into about how significant this, significant this breach, if you will, was. Anytime a security firm or an identity management firm, in the case of Okta, goes through an incident like this, it's a serious concern because of the amount of information that they carry about their customers. Without really knowing um, the depth of the incident, uh, Okta's customers certainly have reason to be on guard. We've seen um, some early reporting out from Cloudflare, for instance, indicating that Cloudflare uh, also detected this and they had some further safety measures in place that prevented them from being affected. We hope that other customers are, are in the same boat. Do we know who's 
behind Lapsus and also I believe Telegram played some sort of role? That's correct. Lapsus is a new um, digital extortion group. They are using the messaging app Telegram to essentially announce their purported breaches and uh, auction off their data and, and hopefully recruit insiders for access, for further access at companies um, like Okta. They also have claimed breaches at Microsoft, Ubisoft, uh, a number of other firms. Do we know if Lapsus is tied to a nation state? Of course, you know, with these threats of more cyber attacks coming from Russia, coming from President Biden himself, it's sure. hard not to jump to that conclusion. Um, one thing that we need to keep in mind uh, as this invasion of Ukraine continues is that financially motivated hacking still is going, um, if not accelerating. Lapsus appears to be a financially motivated group. Uh, researchers, initial research at least, suggests that they appear to be located in South America or in Brazil. That's based on some of their targeting uh, and some victim data, but uh, they don't appear to be particularly skilled. At the other end of the spectrum, they also claim to have access to Microsoft source code, so difficult to say. So that said, give us some more context on President Biden's warning that businesses, U.S. businesses, businesses around the world should be hardening up their cyber defenses. They're preparing for Russian cyber attackers to double down. That's correct. We were expecting a much louder, noisier, perhaps more devastating cyber war, if you will, when Russia's invasion of Ukraine got underway a few weeks ago. That hasn't really happened in the way that analysts initially expected. Um, but the warning yesterday certainly um, gives U.S. companies reason to be on guard again. Some of the reporting that we're starting to hear is that while there may not be specific technical details in the announcement from the White House, that update may have been based on intelligence that would indicate that as Russia's invasion hasn't gone according to plan, they may resort to cyber activity to either raise money or create havoc in different ways. We know that um, U.S. companies certainly are on guard. All right, Jeff Stone, who covers cyber for Bloomberg, thanks for helping us break down some of these complex issues happening in cyberspace. Coming up, Robinhood's new cash card. We're going to hear from Chief Product Officer Aparna Chenapragada on how they want to make investing in stocks and crypto as easy as buying a cup of coffee. This is Bloomberg. If you're a crypto curious Gen Z and millennial, you can you needn't kind of like go deep into the rabbit hole of crypto. You can just you know round up the spare change, invest in a in a in Bitcoin or invest in crypto without kind of like going off the deep end. And I think we think that that's actually one of the things that will be pretty interesting too. Or you can split your paycheck and get uh, some of the money in crypto. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. 
Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Robinhood just unveiled a new debit card that'll prompt users to take their spare change and invest it in small increments for you. That means if you buy a cup of coffee, round up your purchase to the nearest dollar, Robinhood will invest it in the assets of your choice, including crypto. We caught up with Robinhood Chief Product Officer Aparna Chenapurgata exclusively to discuss. Of course, we're working on uh, you know many other products that are that make investing easy for an entire generation of uh, folks to get started with. Uh, but particularly excited to share here the Robinhood Cash Card, um, and what it does is it's a basically it's a spending account and a cash card, a debit card that allows you not only to spend on things that you need, but will help you turn that into investing on things that you want. Uh, what do I mean by that? It does three things really, really well. One is it does actually help you kind of round up the spare change. You buy a cup of coffee. We'll turn that into a spare change uh, that you can invest in crypto or stocks. Uh, so turning spending into investing. The second, it also, we, Robinhood, will give you a weekly bonus to reward you for that and help pitch in and support your investing journey. And finally, we're also working with merchants and retailers to say, how can we help you get even more savings, especially in this context of inflation and price rise? Now, your question is valid, which is what, why this? And we think of this as just another step. Uh, the next big step in investing is really tackling spending because we think that this is expanding the definition of investing. You don't have to wait till you grow, accumulate wealth to be able to then invest to grow it. You start investing at the beginning of the financial journey, right when you start spending. So far, Robinhood earns the majority of its revenue from trading activity. What are the signs you have that a cash card or spending account is something that Robinhood users want? Uh, there's a couple things. First of all, we have a cash management customers that have been using it as part of uh, the brokerage account. We do know, based on customer research, that the next generation of um, folks are debit primary. They're wary of credit card uh, bills. They're wary of kind of the pitfalls. Uh, but at the same time, they have high interest in investing, whether it's be in stock market or in crypto. And so we think that this is a way that we can actually help them not only just like go about their everyday existing behavior, this doesn't require them to change anything, but as they do so, they'll start to kind of like put away a little bit of money towards their tomorrow, towards their future. So the early signs that we're getting from our product testing are very strong that people love this connection between spending and investing. Uh, one customer in our research described it as, this is a debit card with all the trappings of a credit card and none of its pit pitfalls. So how much revenue do you expect to earn from this product in particular? I think there's a couple uh, really strong um, th things that we are looking for here. One, of course, is our customers really uh, who sign up for it, really loving the product, using that for their everyday spending, turning that those you know cups of coffee into investing. Uh, and of course, like just like many other fintech products, there's the interchange fees that uh, uh, that we uh, the debit interchange that we learn from this. But the second thing, which is also really powerful for customers as well as us as a business, is it starts this virtual cycle of spending turning into investing that is really good for customers for their longer long term obviously compound interest is great um, but also great for us as a business more diversified and more connected and, and we have multiple product lines now 
You mentioned in your announcement that for Gen Z, credit cards just aren't as popular as a payment method for millennials. Why do you think that is, and how does that change the future of financing? Yeah, and this is fascinating, Emily, because, you know, when you dig into it, there's a few different reasons. One, of course, the, the, the default assumption you go in with is, oh, of course, they're still building their credit and therefore, you know, the credit cards are not accessible to them. There's some truth to that, um, but there's two other reasons. One is we found a lot of interest from customers in terms of like being in control of their cash flows right and not being and being very wary of like predatory rates that dig a deeper and deeper hole of debt and that they're not able to come out of so that's i think one key reason i think the second reason you think about is there's always a catch and this is verbatim some of how people describe it that there is a catch in terms of the rewards are restricted for a few right if you pay your you know x hundred dollars fee per year then you get this beautiful card if you pay this much money then you get all of these points and so on we just like we are trying to do we have been trying to do on the investing side we said what does it mean and what does it take for us to give whatever was reserved for the few for everyone right great looking card a great app with lots of in-app security features, intuitive design, and rewards for that, that feel like a credit card without any of the catch. Robin Hood's Chief Product Officer, Aparna Chattapurgada, there. You can catch the full interview at Bloomberg.com. Meantime, Mackenzie Scott has made the largest publicly disclosed gift since she pledged to give away the majority of her wealth back in 2019. Scott donated $436 million to the home-building nonprofit Habitat for Humanity. Scott is the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. According to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, she is worth more than $54 billion. The collectible art projects could be the future of content creation, but how do we get more women creating them? That is the focus of Randy Zuckerberg, who is launching a new class featured on Creatively to teach women how to participate in the rapidly evolving NFT landscape. I want to bring in Randy Zuckerberg now for more on this, along with Stacey Bendette, who co-founded Creatively and is also the creative director and CEO of Alice and Olivia, one of my favorite brands. Um, Randy. Talk to me about this class that you're launching to teach creatives. What do you want students to get out of this? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, NFTs are an incredible gateway into learning more about crypto and finance. They're also an incredible platform for artists and creatives to connect directly with their audience for the first time. I know for me, I've collected a lot of art. I've invested in theater and shows, and I've always just missed having that one-on-one -on -one connection with the artists themselves. NFTs provide the perfect way to do that, so I'm really excited to be partnering with Stacey on this course. Stacey, why are you teaming up with Randy on this? You're launching an NFT blouse, which I believe Randy is wearing. Talk to us about the link that you see between NFTs and real world fashion. Well, I feel like for brands, NFTs are an amazing way to connect with your customer. But Randy inspired me to use our blouse as a way to bring more women into the crypto space. So a lot of women are overwhelmed by how to purchase their first NFT, what to do with an NFT, what an NFT is. And so we thought that if we could 
create a blouse that's one of our best-selling blouse shapes with a fun, beautiful print and give the NFT away with it, it was a way to invite more women into the crypto space. Um, and and Randy offered to teach a class to the Creatively community, which are young creatives, and to the Alice and Olivia customers and women who want to learn about NFTs. I think, you know, obviously we saw a lot of NFT hype last year, and some seem to think that the NFT hype is slowing down. Like, if you look at the average trading volume, Randy, it's dropping. How do you make sense of that, and how does this new audience of, of potential creators make sense of that, whether or not to invest in this space? It's a great question, and I don't know if it's slowing down as much as it's changing. It's evolving. Six or seven months ago, it was... Uh, differentiated enough to just be a woman creating NFTs, put a collection out there and sell out. Today, it's not like that anymore. The marketplace is evolving. NFTs need to come with utilities like a blouse, like jewelry, like event tickets or meetups with a VIP or a mentor. And so I think we're in a little bit of a transition point with NFTs and crypto right now where we're going from this world where it was just these collections of JPEGs and art to really thinking how do these become investments with long-term utility. There's a big concern that women are going to get left out of NFTs and crypto like we saw women largely get out, left out of, you know, the big consumer tech wave. And Stacey, I know you spent the early days of your career coding websites for some of the world's biggest fashion brands in a very male-dominated space. How has your experience sort of driven your interest in this initiative? And, and you know, how do we make sure that women don't get left behind again? Well, we need to educate them, we need to inspire them, and we need to teach them. And so we're hoping that Randy's class has thousands of women that join to learn about NFTs and crypto and everything in between. And I want to add that I think that one of the things, you know, right now we saw this boom in, you know, billions or hundreds of millions being spent on art world in the NFT space. But there's a whole nother side to the NFT space that allows brands to connect with customers, brands to connect with women, um, brands to allow NFTs to be this gateway to, you know, sort of give all kinds of different incentives and, you know, surprises to their customers. So I think we're just beginning to see what the NFT world can offer to both the art world, to creatives, to consumers. And I think Randy and I both agree that it's really important for women to understand it and engage in it. Um, and I think we're both determined to make sure that women are not left behind in the space. Randy, there's a question of how you strike the right note with your audience. You recently put together a very well-produced video focused on crypto <laughs> and NFTs, and there was a strong response to it. Not all of it was positive. What was your it goal was with this video, and, and what do you make of the response? <laughs> Yes. Well, Emily, you've known me for a long time. We sang together in college. So anyone who knows me should not be surprised that I would put something like this out. But uh, I'm going to be honest that the crypto world, um, you know, all that we talk about with getting more women into the space, unfortunately, the crypto world right now is not very welcoming. It's not very inviting for newcomers. It feels intimidating. It feels, um, you know, challenging to be a woman walking into an industry that's 90 
95% male. And so for me, everything I do in the space, my education, my courses, these videos is designed to make crypto feel fun and welcoming and inviting because it's not hard and there's incredible opportunity. And so, you know what, if some of the uh, OGs that they call themselves in crypto don't like that I'm coming in here to have fun and welcome women, well, my content is not for them. Uh, my content is for the millions of women and people and newcomers who are going to be coming into crypto this year and in the coming years. My producers, Randy, are asking me for more details on us singing together in college. So thank you for that. Um, I, have a, I, have a last, <laughs> I have a last quick question about the metaverse, because obviously you can't talk about crypto and Web3 and NFTs without talking about the metaverse. Randy, what is your vision for the future of the metaverse? Is this somewhere we're going to be living and working and playing in? Or is it just going to be you know, you know, a small subset of our lives? Well, first, I'm just excited to be getting back to the actual verse after two years of living on Zoom. Um, I am very excited, though, about the metaverse. I think um, some of the NFT collections that I'm working with are working on building schools and education in the metaverse for girls around the world who can't go to school, who are in areas where it's too dangerous or it's not allowed. I'm excited about the opportunity for performances and art in the metaverse. So uh, I, I do think that we, you know, the last two years, as crazy as it's been, has trained everyone to spend more and more of our lives online and to care about our lives and our identity online. So it'll be interesting to see what comes. All right, Randy Zuckerberg, tech entrepreneur, who also sang a cappella in college, um, with me, along that. with uh, Allison Olivia, creative director and CEO, Stacey Bendett, will be watching uh, this course and see how it all plays out. Thank you. This is a great day for the factory, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, I just like to thank everyone who helped. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it really made a very big difference, um, and to the community. And uh, I mean, Tesla will will make sure that this is a uh, a gem, uh, you know, a, a gemstone for the area, for Germany, for Europe, and for the world. You heard it. Tesla is up and running in Germany. I want to get straight to our Ed Ludlow, who's been tracking the story. And something Ed got Elon dancing. Something got him dancing, whether it was <laughs> the fact that the Berlin plant saw line or even the share price. Just look at this chart. Over the last six days, we're up almost 25%. On Tuesday, as the Berlin plant got up and running, the stock jumped 8%, biggest jump in almost two months. It's up for six straight days, best streak since October. And it's back above trillion dollars in market cap. A lot to be happy about. And Musk did make good on his promise to dance at the opening of the Berlin plant, just as he did in Shanghai. I mean, oh, I mean, what do you say, Em? What do you say when you see images like that? He's got quite some moves, huh? He's got some. Well, I'm not going to comment on that, but. <laughs> You know, the Berlin plant's so important for Tesla. They actually managed to do it pretty quickly, two years or so wow. since it was announced. He's really getting to get into it. it. Going. Right, and the first 30 vehicles delivered today. But 
This is the chart that matters, right? This is the projected production for Tesla over the next couple of the years. Shanghai, the orange section, Fremont, the yellow section. You see the two slivers of pink and blue, Berlin and then Austin in Texas, of course, which has not yet come online. And you can see how slowly analysts expect the ramp to be at these plants. So yes, good news, they're underway, but there's gonna be some, some difficulties. Elon Musk talked about how by the end of this year, they want Berlin to produce around five to 10,000 vehicles a week. Today was just the first 30, but they've experimented with technology. It'll be really interesting with this backdrop of supply chain crunch, how well they'll be able to ramp. All right, well, one thing we know for sure, to our viewers who will never be able to unsee Elon Musk dancing yeah. at Ludlow, <laughs> thank you. I want to get to another story. We're continuing to follow the discontent at Disney over CEO Bob Chapek's response to that controversial Florida bill, better known as Don't Say Gay. On Tuesday, employees across the company, many parts of the company, walked off the job, including one of the biggest stars of the Disney Channel. What's up? We're the cast of Raven's Home and the EPs, and we are walking out today in support of this ridiculous bill. We don't like it. We're walking stupid. out. It's stupid. Stupid bill. We love everyone and um, support, support, support. Bye. Raven Simone there and the cast of Raven's Home. It wasn't just big celebrities, though. It was employees across the board. Joining me now, Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri, who attended a walkout in L.A. Chris, talk to us about the turnout. Well, this was something we've been wondering when this first was announced uh, by a group of employees about a week ago that they were asking people to take uh, time off every day, culminating in this big full-day walkout today. It's just how big this was. It's not huge. Uh, there was about 100 people in the park that I saw, who many of them had uh, walked earlier in front of the Burbank headquarters of Disney. Uh, they're a very passionate group, though. I listened to them uh, speak. I spoke to them. Uh, you know, they feel very strongly about this topic, and they're, they're not going to let uh, Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, off easy on this topic. So what's your sense of how Bob Chapek is weathering this? I mean, obviously, seems like, you know, he conceded to making a mistake, not taking a position initially, but now they have course-corrected 180 degrees. Is it enough? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he corrected very quickly. Remember, it was just a couple of days. He said he reversed his position. He was going to take a public stance. He's, he's had to come out and apologize a couple times. Yesterday, big town hall with all employees, uh, he said he's going to go on a global listening tour uh, and talk to folks with other senior leaders. He you know, put aside a management uh, uh, powwow that they were supposed to have next week in, in Orlando to do that. Uh, took strong position against a Texas uh, executive order that deals with a similar topic. So, uh, so he's really trying to, uh, to, to make amends for this with the community of Disney employees. So is it going to work? I mean, there's been speculation that he has a year left on his contract. You know, that could be the end. Yeah, I mean, this part of the problem for JPEG is this uh, dovetails with a lot of other issues. Uh, there's a perception that he is not as strong a people person as his predecessor, Bob Iger, was. He doesn't have the relationships with talent that uh, Iger developed over the years. And uh, so this is just sort of one example in, in that narrative of an executive who maybe is to do a lot better job in connecting with the people who create the content for Disney. Where is Iger in all of this? He obviously came out against the bill fairly early on. You know, the speculation has ranged to, you know, Bob Chapek could be out top. Bob Iger could be coming back. 
he gave an interview last month where where he said no no way that won't happen uh that said you know, he's a very careful political guy he in a way lit this firestorm for for chapek by coming out and taking a stand against this bill uh before disney had and that really sort of put started people then started asking well what's disney's overall position and uh, that's when chapek ultimately responded a couple weeks later so uh you know, the relationship between the two men is not great. Uh, I, I think Chapek chafed at the uh, control that uh, Iger had as chairman for almost two years. Uh, and, uh, and, and Iger maybe feels like he wasn't listened to enough during that time period. All right. We'll continue to watch your reporting on this, Chris. Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri. Thank you. Coming up. Could Ethereum be taking over Bitcoin? We'll have more on the recent crypto market trends and what it means for VC investing next. This is Bloomberg. Time for our crypto report now and a look at what's happening in crypto markets. Crypto assets getting a boost, but divergence seems to be forming between the two largest cryptocurrencies. Our next guest, Bradley Tusk of Tusk Ventures for his take on markets and crypto specifically. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Obviously, yeah, you're looking at the crypto space, but from the perspective of a venture capitalist, how are you advising clients where to put their money, given the additional scrutiny, you know, looming regulatory uncertainty, yeah. and what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and these sanctions? Yeah, so, so those are all really good points. I'm definitely a crypto believer. My fund has investments in companies like Coinbase and Circle. So... We're certainly in it, but at the same time, I do think that regulation is the greatest threat to cryptocurrency. And I think that the crypto community misinterpreted the executive order that President Biden issued uh, two weeks ago around it. I think people, because it didn't say, you know, we're shutting crypto down, people were you kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But in reality, it reinforced all the power that the SEC and other agencies have to regulate crypto however they see fit. So I think this should be a bigger concern than it has been so far. How big a concern? Well, look, I mean, Gary Gensler is certainly not a crypto fan, and there's really no reason why he couldn't say, you know, we are going to impose these kinds of reporting requirements or taxation in a way that basically makes some sort of transaction impossible or prohibiting, uh, you know, margin-based uh, lending or requiring a stablecoin currency reserve. That's unreasonable. So they could do a lot to hurt crypto. And I think the point here to me is the crypto world has to grow up politically and recognize that because their greatest threat is regulatory risk. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. 
Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Uh, they have to get political in the way that pharma and lots of other industries are. They may find it distasteful, um, but they've got to do it to protect themselves. Now, there's this big ha debate happening, Bitcoin versus Ethereum. We heard what Shanali was talking about earlier. I just asked Serena Williams, who's got her own venture capital fund now, what she thinks. Take a listen to what she had to say. I think uh, Bitcoin has had an amazing boom and it continues to do something amazing and it's it's huge, right? I'm personally um, really in love with Ethereum. I think it, it's just, um, it's more accessible. Brad, are you a Bitcoin or an Ethereum guy and why? So I will say this. I don't invest in the actual currency either way. My view is we can assess whether or not we think a company will succeed and then we can impact the company's future and activities and everything else. But whether Bitcoin or Ethereum will go up and down at any given day is, is usually kind of beyond my, my pay grade. Um, but look, I think there are certain things to Ethereum in terms of the type of blockchain that it's on and its accessibility that, that Serena is, is probably right. It's easy to see why it started to become a real competitor. I'm kind of curious, many investors like you are investing in crypto infrastructure given some of these uncertainties around the future, around regulation, but from a purely valuation standpoint, are you worried at all that perhaps maybe too much money is flowing into the infrastructure companies at a time where there's still worries about a disconnect between private and public valuations? Yeah, look, it's a very fair point, and I think back to when we invested in a company called Wheel, which is a telemedicine matching engine based in Austin, Texas, that just had a billion-dollar valuation. And I remember literally thinking, if I believe in the future of digital health, then I should invest in Wheel, right? I kind of think it's the same thing here. Um, I do think that regulation is an existential risk to cryptocurrency, but I also think it's here to stay and here for the long term. And so, look, if it is a piece of infrastructure that the community really needs, I think it makes total sense. I think one problem we often have in venture is because there's so much money in the sector right now, people are investing in companies that solve problems that don't really exist in the first place. So whatever problem you're solving has to be a real problem. And how do you think about crypto investing versus broader Web3? Do you think that the crypto part of the landscape is under or over-invested in here? Look, right now it's over-invested simply because we don't have any Web3 investments and very few people do because no one exactly knows what that means yet, right? But to me, where the two get really interesting is when Web3 is here, when we're in the metaverse, that's in my view when crypto goes from being an asset class to an actual currency. When tons of, of, of transactions are happening completely within the metaverse, totally digital, that's when it really makes sense for vendors to say, yes, we take Amex and Visa, but we also take you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, and so I think that the two really converge um, when the metaverse and Web3 is actually here. Who runs the metaverse of the future in your view, and how is that guiding your investment decisions? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the answer, is, as you know, is nobody knows. Um, but I think <laughs> where we should take note is, look, you have companies like 
Facebook and Microsoft and Apple spending tens of billions of dollars uh, on metaverse development. Um, they want to build walled gardens that basically keep you inside of their ecosystem and infrastructure and spending money on their stuff as opposed to somebody else's. And I think that the, I wrote a memo about two months ago on how to regulate the metaverse. And the reason I did it was because I know that if we follow the typical path where uh, a technology company comes up with a new idea, they launch it, and then after some period of time, government realizes it exists and start, starts to try to regulate it, that almost never works, right? Um, and you gotta get out ahead of these problems in the in, on the front end. And so I think that if we want government to have some say over the metaverse, and the reason why that's important is um, all of the lack of privacy and portability and data ownership that we have in Internet 2.0 in this country, I think most people would like to have more protections when the metaverse comes and when Web3 comes. And so if government doesn't proactively say, mm -hmm. how do we protect and look out for consumers in the metaverse, then no one's going to, uh, and people are going to have a hard time. I have another question here about venture capital and as, how it changes as it pertains to crypto. Given that people are raising money in so many new and different ways in the crypto landscape, do you think if the VC space doesn't adapt that they risk competing very heavily with crypto investment? Yeah, yeah for sure. So, well, yes to no, actually. Yes, because you're seeing crypto companies themselves start doing internal venture investing. You're seeing funds that are specifically focused just on crypto and nothing else. And they're going to have advantages in terms of the ability to see deals, to analyze deals and everything else. At the same time, when times are really flush, everyone's throwing money. And if either because of regulation or some other problem, you know, the price of crypto declines significantly, all of these companies making kind of side investments in other crypto startups and infrastructure and everything else may end pretty quickly. So I don't know that the competition has longevity, but I do think that right now they have some advantages. All right, Bradley Tusk, Tusk Ventures, along with Arshanali Basik. Thank you both. Well, as corporate life slowly gets back to a new normal, the fintech startup Ramp is taking advantage. The company raising another $750 million, valued at now over $8 billion, all while continuing to grow. Joining me now, the CEO of Ramp, Eric Gleiman. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. So talk to us a little bit about Ramp's business, what you do, and why it's important in the fintech landscape today. Of course, and Emily, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so Ramp is a finance automation platform. We offer the fastest growing corporate card in America with built-in expense management, bill payments, and accounting automation. Uh, and, and the impact that we drive for companies is we help the average company spend 3.3% less uh, each year and close their books eight times faster. You're competing with giants like American Express. What do you have on them? Yeah, so first, it, it, it's a fundamentally a design that's focused on our customer. Uh, and so where, where there's others in the space have thought a lot about how to design points programs that incentivize companies to spend more than they intended uh, to earn more revenue for the company, uh, we design our products with the intent of helping business owners spend less money and spend less time. And that's why we believe we were able to grow revenues by a factor of 10 times and grow the number of cardholders using Ramp by 15 times year over year. And we think that aligned approach is what business owners are looking for. $8.1 billion, it's certainly a hefty valuation. How do you plan to invest this new capital? Uh, primarily on, on hiring. 
uh, today, ramp is about 300 people, uh, and we intend to double that uh, over the coming year. Uh, primarily hiring and, and uh, research and development, engineering, product design, trying to come up with software that identifies where companies are wasting time. Um, you know, things like manual expense reports, helping automate that away fully. Uh, wasting money, identify where certain companies are getting charged more than others and, and helping combat price discrimination. Uh, and ultimately supporting more business owners. We support over 5,000 companies today in the U.S. Uh, and we intend to use the, the, the funding to help scale to tens of thousands. You're also planning to open a new office in Miami later this year. Why Miami and how much of your workforce will be coming in to that office versus working remotely? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. Um, so first, just Miami has become an incredibly dynamic city, uh, especially coming into and, and, and out of the pandemic. Uh, we're seeing a lot of new business formation, uh, founders heading down there, uh, and Ramp wants to be where business owners um, are forming new companies, where companies are operating, people are, are, are seeking to, um, uh, to create and grow workforces. Uh, and so a lot of this is really around uh, supporting the businesses down there, but also, too, coming throughout the pandemic, we just see that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of our, our workforce wants to work in, in great places. People are used to being able to work uh, where they want um, and, and how they want. And so um, by June, uh, we should open our office. Um, you know, we're going to be hiring locally as well as supporting employees who want to spend some time uh, and, and work from a sunny place for part of the year. Given that you're working with a lot of small businesses, what are they telling you, given geopolitical uncertainty, inflation? There's a lot of pressure and uncertainty about what lies ahead. For sure. You know, we, we, we talk with finance teams, founders, uh, CFOs day in, day out. Uh, and I think during this period, um, you know, businesses are, are still trying to do the same thing they're always trying to do, which is, you know, grow um, grow business, have a great livelihood, uh, and support others. But I think what's especially important and people are planning for if, if capital is harder to access, you know, making sure people are being prudent for their funds. Uh, and, and so, you know, for us, a lot of that comes down to, um, you know, can we help companies identify where there's waste, um, you know, where certain companies are spending more than others, um, and helping companies that are, that are, that are looking to bring down their spend, um, you know, and, and designing software that helps them achieve that. Um, a lot of people are right. looking for support um, for travel, you know, for uh, you know, uh, travel. Um, as people, as workforces have suddenly become hybrid through the pandemic, uh, even though there's uncertainty globally, a lot of for a lot of Americans, it's starting to see others in, in different offices and, and locations across the country. Um, and so, integrated travel management, expense management, and the like are, are hot areas of development uh, for Ramp and our customers. Quick question: When's the IPO? Uh, no current plans. Um, but look, we're, we're trying to, um, you know, build a business for the long run uh, and align incentives. And, you know, that, that's what we're focused on day in and day out. Um, and, and we'll see where, where things take us. All right. Eric Lyman, CEO of Ramp, thank you so much for joining us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We will be right back here tomorrow. Don't forget to check out our new podcast. Every episode of the show, you can listen on the go, on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, on the terminal. Of course, we'll be right back here tomorrow. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.